morning, good morning. Sunday morning, 7 o'clock in Orleans. My Community Plan Foundation. I'm your host, Reverend Mitchell L. E. Kenna Johnson. And I'm your co-host, Adia Hayden. Adia Hayden, good to see you again. Good to see you. Good um, to be seen. <laughs> so, some preachers will say better to be viewed. Oh. But no one's come back other than Jesus to say it's okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go ahead and just let that go for right now. Hey, listen, um, interesting week. Yes. Let's start with um, I tweet or do we? <laughs> I tweet, you tweet, we all tweet. Or <laughs> not anymore. Or not anymore. I think the company is no longer going to remain public. Correct. Um, their new owner, majority shareholder, uh, Elon Musk, closed his deal and is making to move Twitter to become a private company. And in that move has terminated most of the upper executives. You know what's interesting that I don't know we've not spoken about is Mr. Musk is South African originally. He was born in South Africa. And his dad made his money in apartheid South Africa. So can we really be surprised at the moves he is now making if you believe the apple does not fall far from the apartheid tree? Interesting. Interesting. Um, Elaborate a little bit more on that. The (laughs) apartheid business and owning Twitter, the world's largest social media (laughs) platform right now. Well, his dad made his money participating in a regime that devalued um, the majority of people actually living in the country from which said money was made. So to some degree, two things. One, clearly the gentleman knows how to generate revenue. That is a very clear statement. Mm -hmm. But just as clear, he grew up in a household in an environment where everyone was not valued. Mm -hmm. And so his notion of buying Twitter isn't it interesting? He said, because he wanted to protect democracy, mm-hmm. and then he goes private. Is democracy a private institution? Um, so I think what he has and what a lot of billionaires have is this savior mentality, savior complex that I can be the one to do it. So if you read like some of his messages to advertisers and just other tweets in the wake of this deal closing, um, he really tries to assert like, you know, I can be the one to protect open debate and I'm going to come in and let, you know, break down silos so that we can encourage conversation and some nice buzzwords. But it's interesting because, you know, like we're saying, he thinks he's going to personally lead that charge um, to unify us or just to at least encourage us to talk to one another. And somehow. Allegedly. The, the history of not just his family. Um, which doesn't have to necessarily um, cast a shadow on his presence, but how he ran and runs his business enterprises and this move to let go um, so many folk and then take the company private just to me is, is mildly counterintuitive. But what do I know? Stay tuned for all you tweeters. And then we have a MAGA man. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the news again. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I'm sure while we're giggling, Paul um, Pelosi finds nothing humorous about this conversation. Oh, not at all. Not at all. The uh, 82-year-old man was hit over the head with a hammer by a MAGA intruder uh, at their home in California. 
82 years old, cowering in his bathroom. And, you know, I don't maybe I shouldn't use the word cowering. He was he could have been, you know, indisposed. Um, but the news report suggested he was hiding from the man in his bathroom, hit over the head, fractured his skull with a hammer by someone who had been posting on social media, um, you know, perspectives that might put him squarely in the Trumpian perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And has now making to uh, attack our government. You know, he was screaming, where's Nancy, which is the same phrase that was echoed um, in the halls of the Capitol on January 6th. Where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? So here's the question. Is this a Second Amendment conversation now? Because if the 82-year-old cat would have had a gat, it wouldn't have ended quite like that. Um, we don't know. How was this rhyme? You didn't get my rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> the rhyme was nice, but, you know, we don't know what the outcome would have been if either of those individuals had a gun. Uh, if we made gun access easier, either both of them could have one, one person could have one. Um, well, and the are night could have ended very differently. Criminals are always going to have guns. That's just what it is. Even in, even in the United Kingdom, the folk with the most guns are the folk in some criminal enterprise. Mm-hmm. Everyday common folk, whatever that looks like, they generally don't have firearms. But the good news is that weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Speaking of joy coming in the morning... <laughs> Illinois Supreme Court Justice Joy Cunningham is on the line with us on this morning. Uh, Justice Cunningham, welcome to the My Community Plan Foundation Hour. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Oh, it is our pleasure. Thank you for getting up so bright and early on a Sunday morning. I'm just wondering, how's your jet lag coming along? You know, surprisingly, I am not as tired as I thought I would be, and I had so much to do since I, I got back on Friday, and so um, yesterday was just completely, uh, it was a lost day with doing a lot of things, and yesterday was my birthday, <laughs> but in in addition to Having a celebrate a celebration dinner, I had a lot of catching up to do on work things, household things, you know. I do now. I'm going to go ahead and do this, and this this I don't know how this is going to sound, but happy birthday to you, happy, happy birthday, birthday to you, happy birthday, <laughs> Justice Cunningham, happy birthday to you. There you go. Well, thank you very much, and I think that sounded pretty good. Um, I'm going to record that in your response, at least. (laughs) (laughs) So, from someone who can't carry a tune, Reverend Mitchell, you sounded fabulous to me. uh, Listen, you can be on the program early on a Sunday morning whenever you want to. That (laughs) is your open door policy. You don't have to have anyone call; just show up on the line. I don't care what we're talking about. You are now welcome every Sunday morning at your leisure. Well, thank you. And I am an early riser, so being up at this hour is not out of character for me at all. So, Adia, you might have another guest host. Oh, yes. You know, I am not typically an early riser, but I make it work for this incredible opportunity we have here and to sit down and discuss with you all on the air. 
Sounds like a plan to me. Hey, listen, let's um, let's let's do something um, that we were hoping to do earlier, and that is this. Let's talk a little about you, Justice Cunningham, um, for our listening audience who may not have met you. Um, why don't you tell us a little about how it is that you get to? Uh, let's start with the City University of New York with your Bachelor's of Science degree. Well, I am from New York originally, so um, CCNY, which I attended, is always, it's a school for ambitious young people who didn't have any money. And <laughs> That's one way to I, put it. <laughs> I certainly wanted a college degree, and my parents insisted that all of their, their children get a college degree, so... City, the City University of New York was my option, and it's a, it's a very old, very well-respected school. In fact, we've CCNY has had several um, Nobel Prize winners in chemistry and physics and economics and other things of that nature. So I was basically, it, it was a very obvious option for me. That music in the background tells me that in addition to the Nobel laureates, we have to mention to our listening audience, this is the My Community Plan Foundation Hour. And we'll be right back after these short station messages. Starting a job search? In need of training to get new skills? Are you an employer looking for a great hire? The Chicago Cook Workforce Partnership can help. We're the umbrella organization for the largest publicly funded workforce development system in the nation, serving Chicago and Cook County. Our network consists of more than 90 community-based organizations that can offer you the assistance you need at no cost. Make the call. Dial 1-800-720-2515 or visit shycookworks.org. Find the connection you need. YWCA Metropolitan Chicago has partnered with a global manufacturing company seeking to fill open positions in their south suburban location. No experience required. If interested, contact 773-902-8989. Email cvcf at ywcachicago.org. It all starts with one meal, one cup of fresh water, one generous person. Sakat Foundation of America puts humanity above all else, working to help as many people as possible with food security, emergency relief, education, and much more. From Chicago to Bridgeview, California to New York, Cambodia to Colombia, Sakat Foundation of America has been on the ground for nearly 20 years to provide immediate and sustainable aid so people in need can become self-reliant. Visit zakat.org for more information. That's Z-A-K-A-T dot org. Welcome back to the My Community Plan Foundation Hour. Uh, we have with us a member of an elite crew. Crew includes Stanley Kerbick. 
famous American film director and producer Henry Kissinger. We all know about this German-born American politician. Tony Curtis, Colin Powell, Eli Watch, and Mr. I Write the Songs That Make the Whole World Sing, Barry Manilow. <laughs> None of those guys are here, but one of their... Um, you know, Justice Cunningham, welcome back to the program. Let's start with that. <laughs> Thank you. You are part of an illustrious crew. Russell Simmons is also a graduate of CUNY City College. Wow. Well, now there you go. It's, you know, there is a saying in New York. It's um, CCNY's called the poor man's Harvard because back in the day, it was one of the few options available to people who were intent on getting a college degree but didn't have, you know, the family money or otherwise able to get uh, a merit-based scholarship to one of the big schools. So it was. I felt that I got a great education there. And you're right, I'm in good company. Certainly there are a lot of very illustrious alumni from CCNY. You know, Colin Powell's wife finished Fisk University, as did I. I had to find a way to get Fisk in that conversation. It's the HBCU conversation. Had to have to do it. Must it's, it's a must do. But I mean, you are really in. I, I, I guess that surely you're going to be on this list of illustrious alum of CUNY City College. In fact, you are. You are now. I mean, the update has the newest uh, Illinois State Supreme Court justice. How about that? Oh, Wikipedia. Wow. You can go in and do that if you would like. <laughs> well, and oh, that's amazing. Well, I have to say, Reverend Mitchell, you really you really do your homework. And <laughs> I think that that's what makes you so good at what you do. Well, um, once again, I'm going to rec- you're being recorded. So <laughs> you're going to be on one of my commercials. Literally, that's going to happen. So um, let's go back after... Um, City University of New York, um, you found yourself here in Chicago at the John Marshall Law School. Tell us a little about that journey. Well, you know, I did not come to Chicago to go to John Marshall Law School. I came to Chicago for a job, and while I was here, I decided to go to law school. And I applied to several local law schools, and I got accepted at John Marshall first. It was the first one, and always being a cautious person, I accepted, they accepted me, and I accepted them, and the rest is history. That's how I ended up at John Marshall. What's interesting that I I really want our listening audience to hear is you did not come to Chicago to attend law school. Um, so tell us a little about why going to law school was on your mind um, when it wasn't when you arrived. You arrived in Chicago to work, and you ended up attending John Marshall Law School. How did how did that happen? In many respects, I I sometimes say that it happened by serendipity, but as I look back. Over my life and over the years, probably it was always an, a plan that was preordained for me, but I didn't, maybe I didn't recognize that that was what I was going to do. I decided that I wanted to become a lawyer. And why did I decide that? Because it just seemed to me at the time 
there was a lot of, oh, what did I say? Social, there was social unrest and things going on, and many people make lawyer jokes, but I was never one of them. I always felt that lawyers were kind of the underpinnings of civil rights and changes in society, and I thought, you know, I want to be a lawyer. It was as simple as that, so I applied to uh, John Marshall, I applied to Kent, I applied to DePaul, to Loyola, to Northwestern, all of them, and I got accepted at John Marshall first, and and I went there. And, you know, interestingly enough, once I decided to become a lawyer, it just, I became very single-minded and focused on that. So I worked all through law school, but I worked at night and went to law school during the day. A little known fact is that my undergraduate degree is a Bachelor of Science in Nursing. So I was a registered nurse. Wow. And is that the uh, position that, that brought you to Chicago? Yes, I came to Chicago for a nursing job. And I worked at, and I had um, quite a bit of experience. I was an ICU nurse and you know, this doesn't seem that long ago, but back in the day, <laughs> there were very few nurses with bachelor's degrees who were nurses of color working in ICUs. And I worked in the ICU at Michael Reese and at the um, St. Francis Hospital in Evanston. They had a surgical heart unit, and I was, exper- I was an experienced surgical heart nurse. So I had no trouble finding a job, and it was amazing to me how few nurses of color had bachelor's degrees back then. This was, you know, in the mid-'80s, and so this was a long time ago. And I had lots of work, lots of work opportunities, and so I took it. So is John Marshall part of the University of Illinois? Yes, it is. It is. Now it is. It is John Marshall Law School of the University of Illinois. The University of Illinois has two law schools. Um, actually, I think they have three, but one is the, John Marshall is the Chicago branch. Okay. So once again, you find yourself in rare air. I'm talking about Blanche Manning. I'm talking about my fraternity brother, um, the Honorable. Charles E. Freeman, um, Timothy Evans. Good night. You always find yourself in the company of, well, not just groundbreakers, but sometimes mere, interestingly enough, lawmakers. In that, in that category, I put William M. Daly. <laughs> just, he's, he's a graduate of the University of Illinois John Marshall School of Law. Say, say what you will. I mean, the man became, became mayor of Chicago. That is true. I hear crickets. <laughs> you know, my grandmother told me if you have nothing good to say, don't say nothing at all. So, and your grandma was right. <laughs> Justice Joy Cunningham. I like the way that sounds. So we have. Um, Finishing law school, practice law, um, worked um, in the legal industry. 
prior to, did you initially run for trial court or did you initially begin your tenure on the bench at the appellate level? No, I I ran for the the circuit court in the eighth South Circuit and lost that race. And then I was appointed as an associate judge a few years later. And so I served on the trial court in that as an as an associate judge. Okay. And you um kind of did one thing that I always say no one cares how much you know until folk know how much you care. And you served as president of the Chicago Bar Association as well. In fact, you're the first African-American woman to do so. That's true. And again, that, you know, in many respects that came about, I thought, by serendipity, but probably not. And it's a very circuitous route that I took to that. When I was a young lawyer, I was hired as the law clerk for the Honorable Justice Glenn T. Johnson, who I consider the late Justice Glenn T. Johnson, who was my mentor. And I believe Justice Johnson was either the first or the second African-American man to sit on the Illinois Appellate Court. And Justice Johnson in those days always hired law clerks um, from among the black law students that he could find because no one ever hired African-American law clerks except the African-American judges, and there were very few of them. At one time, there were only there were two, Justice Johnson and the late Justice Ken Wilson. So I became Justice Johnson's law clerk, and he said to me, and this is what he said to all of his clerks, you have to join the Chicago Bar Association. And of course, at that time, I was young, I had no money, and I thought, why do I want to join the Chicago <laughs> Bar Association? That's just, I'm going to have to pay dues. And he said, because when I, when he was a young man, he said they had a very racist policy. They wouldn't let, they, they didn't allow blacks or Jews in the organization, and they opened the door a crack. He said, I've, I, and I joined, and I've been able to make a lot of changes from being in that organization. And he said, so I, I make my law clerks join the CBA because I want to plant as many seeds as I can in these organizations that have power. So Justice Johnson made me join the CBA. That's how it started. That's a wonderful story. Um, and you, you point out something that I think our listening audience needs to hear historically. Um, African-American appellate justices were the only route young black lawyers had to serve in the appellate court on their staff as clerks. If you if you did not have African-American justices and while you were talking about Justice Johnson, I like how that sounds. um, I couldn't help but to think about Justice R. Eugene Pynchon who also served um, on the appellate court. And I do so because if we don't have African-Americans in those positions, then the road to those jobs, those learning opportunities, um, generally are not being um, populated by women generally and people of color. Would that be an accurate statement, you think? 
That is absolutely true. And when you mentioned Justice R. Eugene Pincham, the late Justice R. Eugene Pincham, I can't help but smile. He was certainly one of my mentors. And Justice Pincham, it's probably the reason that I ended up on the appellate court. So I have a story about him as well. (laughs) Justice, Justice Pincham was an icon. He was my idol. I love Justice Pincham. And... You know, he encouraged me to run for the appellate court. Really? I, can, I, I, I don't know why I, I said really, but yeah, I, I have a couple stories of my own on Justice Pinchin. That we'll get to, perhaps, on the other side of this break. Music in the background means that we have bills to pay. We have commercials to air. So please stay tuned, and we will be right back after this short station break. Starting a job search? In need of training to get new skills? Are you an employer looking for a great hire? The Chicago Cook Workforce Partnership can help. We're the umbrella organization for the largest publicly funded workforce development system in the nation, serving Chicago and Cook County. Our network consists of more than 90 community-based organizations that can offer you the assistance you need at no cost. Make the call. Dial 1-800-720-2515. Or visit shycookworks.org. Find the connection you need. Are you looking for a new career? YWCA Metropolitan Chicago has partnered with a global manufacturing company seeking to fill several roles in their south suburban location. No experience required. They're seeking to fill the following positions. Assembly operator, automation technician, molding operator, quality inspector, setup technician, forklift driver, cycle counter, material handler. If interested, contact 773-902-8989. Email cvcf at ywcachicago.org. It all starts with one meal, one cup of fresh water, one generous person. Sakat Foundation of America puts humanity above all else, working to help as many people as possible with food security, emergency relief, education, and much more. From Chicago to Bridgeview, California to New York, Cambodia to Colombia, Sakat Foundation of America has been on the ground for nearly 20 years to provide immediate and sustainable aid so people in need can become self-reliant. Visit Zakat.org for more information. That's Z-A-K-A-T dot org. Welcome back to the My Community Plan Foundation Hour this morning. Justice Joy Cunningham on the line. Welcome back to the program, Justice Cunningham. Thank you. During the break, um, we always have some of the most interesting and lively conversations, and one of them had to do with your statement that uh, former Illinois um, Appellate Court Justice R. Eugene Pincham um, you recognize him as one of your mentors. And as I was sharing here in the studio, um, there are a, a huge community 
of not just judges, but political activists, elected officials other than in the judiciary who count R. Eugene Pinchin as being one of their examples of not just giving back, but making a difference. And so we are sitting with bated breath to hear your story of the honorable former Illinois appellate court justice, indomitable R. Eugene Pinchin. Well, I agree with everything that you just said about Judge Pincham. He um, he was such a larger-than-life um, figure that, you know, when he spoke or when he walked into a room, whatever he did, it was always just something that was larger than life. Well, as you probably know, I was I, I've had a very nonlinear legal career. So at the time I began talking to Justice Pincham about the appellate court, I was senior vice president and general counsel for the Northwestern Memorial Healthcare System, which, as Judge Pynchon said, you know, that's a big effing job. <laughs> I remember <laughs> that. I remember that. And he said to me, and I told him, you know, I have, my son was a year and a half old when I decided that this was a really, it was a wonderful job, but I felt that I really wanted to be more present in in my son's life, and I felt that I could use my education, training, legal talents in a different way. It was very interesting to be in the Northwestern system. That's a whole other story, which we can talk about another day, because I feel that I was able to make a difference there. But I sat down with Justice Pincham, and I said, I really want to, I, I want to go back to the bench. And he said, well, you know, people are going to think you're a, a blank fool because we don't get those kind of jobs, meaning my Northwestern right. job. You're making all of this money, and you're going to leave and go back to the bench. I said, yeah, I really want to do that. And he said, well, you know, and I've known, I've known him for a number of years. He said, well, although people are going to think you're a blank fool, Mm-hmm. I think it's a good idea, and I think you're gonna. I think you're gonna do well, and I'm gonna help you. So he chaired, He was co-chair of my my committee, and we set about getting me elected to the Illinois Appellate Court. And I eventually won that election. And I say eventually because I won by the smallest margin ever in the history of an Illinois appellate court race. I won by 510 votes. Wow. I was not the voting matters. That's right. I was not the candidate of the Democratic Party, but I won. And Justice Pincham, this rings in my ears to this day. He said, they didn't want you there, but the people wanted you. You got elected. Do the right thing. Just always remember that. And I do. That, that's just a, an amazing story. And I, I got to tell you, one of the reasons that uh, I kept trying to get you on the program is that story is a story that folk need to hear. They need to hear a couple of things that you said. One, um, it wasn't part of your master plan to go to law school. I mean, for after all, you have a bachelor's in science. You were in nursing. That wasn't part of your plan, but there are people along your journey who helped you uncover what your plan really was and now is. And it is no surprise to all those who can hear that our Eugene Pincham is part of the the 
storytellers that help get you to where you are on today. So for that, um, if that's all that was uncovered on today, I would be eternally grateful. But wait, there's more. Because you are about to leave the appellate bench and you have been appointed um, as the second African-American woman in the state of Illinois and the first from Cook County to sit on the Illinois State Supreme Court. Tell us a little about this journey. Well, this journey was another journey that wasn't planned in the way, at least in the way it turned out. I ran for a seat on the Illinois Supreme Court 10 years ago. And I lost been 10 years? It's been 10 years. Yikes. Time flies. Yes, it has. Yikes. And I lost that election. (laughs) And, you know, so I I did the best. I I ran my best race, and I felt that I had no regrets. I worked as hard as I could, and I lost that election. And so I settled into being an appellate court justice and being the best appellate court justice I could be. And as time went on, I um, was just not thinking at all about another run for the Illinois Supreme Court. That was not in my plans at all. And about, I have to, maybe a few months ago, Justice Ann Burke called me and asked if I would come to her chambers, and I went. We had a conversation about her plans to retire, and she said, would you accept an appointment to the Illinois Supreme Court if I were to put your name forward? And, you know, I... And believe it or not, I didn't say, yes, I will right away. I really did have to think about this for a while and what that would mean for my family. And if that, if I accepted it, I felt that I would have to, I would really want to run for the seat because I think it's very important for diversity on the, to be on the court and all of the things that were a part of that decision. So I went, I sat around talked with my family and thought about it a little bit. And then I told her, yes, I'd accept the appointment. And she advanced my name to the court, and the rest is history. <laughs> well, history history continues to be in the making. Yes, congratulations. And Justice Cunningham, as we listen to your career journey, um, I hear lots of names and lots of notable names come up. Can you speak a little bit about just the power of networking and mentorship um, for individuals as we come along in our careers and just connecting with folks who may have the position that you want or you think you could want so they can help you out? I think that that is such an important question and it's such an important skill to develop. I learned very early in my after I moved to Chicago that networking is a very essential part of just about any profession, and certainly in the law. That was one of the reasons that Justice Johnson insisted that I join the the Chicago Bar Association, which I I later learned. I mean, that was one of the things he told me. And that was very true. I met met a, a varied array of people who I probably would never have come in contact with. And as things go along, you find that those people are helpful in your career journey later on. I do a lot of mentoring of young people now, and I tell them 
all the time. Just pay attention to what's going on around you and take really good advantage of all of these opportunities because it's going to help you later. You just don't at that moment know exactly when that's going to be of of use to you later in your career, but it really does make a difference. And I, um, I do a lot of mentoring and that's always a theme that I try to tell my mentees. Networking, especially in the law, it's so important. It really is. And as I speak with a lot of um, my colleagues and peers, people, we speak about, you know, maybe how difficult it could be to find a mentor. So you brought up one of the easy ways to do that, um, which could be joining a professional organization. I've also recently heard the tip just to set a meeting with individuals who could be doing something that you're interested in and try to meet with two folks a quarter. Um to get some insights from them. But do you have any other additional tips for how to align yourself with a mentor or just how to break the ice? And, you know, what do I say? What do I send in that email? You know, if I cold call someone, you know, do I just say, hey, can you mentor me? How do you get that conversation started? You know, there are many ways for mentoring. Some people who have been my mentors probably aren't even aware that they were my mentors because mm-hmm. what I would do is I would watch what what other when for example, when I became a circuit court judge, I would when I wasn't assigned to a particular if I didn't have a, a court call that day, I would go and sit in the courtrooms of other judges who were more experienced and just take away things from like, oh, gee, that's really wonderful. I'll do that. And then there were judges I'd think, oh, gee, I'd never do that. So you you get an opportunity to see an array of styles and from experienced people who basically have been doing the job for a long time, and it gives you an opportunity to select the best practices without the person even knowing that you're there, mm. that they're mentoring you in a way. So I've done quite a bit of that. But I also think just basic back to mentoring, I'll tell you another brief story. When I was a law clerk to Justice Johnson, he encouraged me to talk with the other justices in our division, and I did that a lot. And I remember talking with Justice John J. Sullivan, who, if you looked in the dictionary next to wasp, that would be his <laughs> there. However, he was he was a very kind man and continued to and he mentored a lot of people and I was one of them. So one of the things he did for me was he told me that he was going to introduce me to Jewel LaFontante who was a uh, an African-American woman who became, I believe, the first um, African-American woman ambassador or delegate to the United Nations. And she's mm. the mother, the late mother of John Rogers, who's the CEO of Ariel Capital Management. Well, Justice Sullivan introduced me to this woman way back when, and she took me to lunch and told me uh, some wise words of um, encouragement, things that I should or should not do as I was making my way up through my career. And at that time, I had been a lawyer for maybe two years. So these are things that I found to be very, very helpful. And that was an early lesson in networking for me. 
Justice Cunningham, the music in the background tells me and our listening audience that it's time to take our final break of the program. When we come back with Illinois Supreme Court Justice, um, you're going to be interned on December 1st. Uh, Joy Cunningham um, giving us all a lesson in relationships. This is the My Community Plan Foundation Hour, and we'll be right back after this short station break. YWCA Metropolitan Chicago has partnered with a global manufacturing company seeking to fill open positions in their South Suburban location. No experience required. If interested, contact 773-902-8989. Email cvcf at ywcachicago.org. It all starts with one meal, one cup of fresh water, one generous person. Sakat Foundation of America puts humanity above all else, working to help as many people as possible with food security, emergency relief, education, and much more. From Chicago to Bridgeview, California to New York, Cambodia to Colombia, Sakat Foundation of America has been on the ground for nearly 20 years to provide immediate and sustainable aid so people in need can become self-reliant. Visit Zakat.org for more information. That's Z-A-K-A-T dot org. Starting a job search? In need of training to get new skills? Are you an employer looking for a great hire? The Chicago Cook Workforce Partnership can help. We're the umbrella organization for the largest publicly funded workforce development system in the nation, serving Chicago and Cook County. Our network consists of more than 90 community-based organizations that can offer you the assistance you need at no cost. Make the call. Dial 1-800-720-2515 or visit shycookworks.org. Find the connection you need. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back, welcome back to the My Community Plan Foundation Hour. With us is Illinois Supreme Court Justice Joy Cunningham, giving all of us a lesson on, dare I say, the power of relationships. Yes, throughout our lives and at different phases of our lives. And you just never know what your horizon will look like if you allow other hands to help build your ladder to success. Welcome back to the program, Justice Cunningham. Thank you. It's It, it has been just um, a wonderful walk for me, at least personally, not just down memory lane, um, but as you know, the question that Adia posed to you about the power of networking and uh, Chief Apostle Dr. William McCoy would say, your network is not worth it unless you're working the net. Yeah, that's that going- is so, that's so true. A dear Hayden over here in the studio is like, what in the world? That's, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard uh, your network is your net worth. 
as well. So the power of the connections and relationships that one maintains um, certainly adds to their overall net worth. Justice Cunningham, um, I'm going to agree with Adia that your network does reflect in part your net worth. And certainly your journey is a wonderful example of the value of your network. But in this section, we call this last section the action section. And one of the things that we have been trying to do, um, both on this platform and other MCP platforms, is to encourage younger people in general and people in communities who feel marginalized, displaced, and not a part of, in particular, to participate in this great experiment called democracy. What are your thoughts on that effort? I think it's crucial. It's crucial. You know, I listened to former President Barack Obama speaking to a group of people. He said, you know, democracy is a concept that has to be nurtured and fed and um, in many respects, you have to tend it. It's not something that will continue of its own volition, so to speak. And I think we've seen a great example of that in terms of what happened in the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. I mean, we were as close to a constitutional crisis as ever we could be in this country. So I think it's very important for the next generation of leaders to understand, for example, the power of the vote. So important. I have an 18-year-old son, and under recent Illinois law, you can register to vote in the year in which you are going to turn 18 if there is going to be an election before your 18th birthday. Well, of course... We marched right down there, and, <laughs> and he he understands that voting is really important because many people died so that black people could have the right to vote, and he has grown up in a household that values and espouses that. So I expect him to carry it forward, and so I I, I become very um, focused on getting people out to vote because in in our society, we really can change things at the ballot box. And I feel that I am a perfect example of that. Those 510 votes mm-hmm. that I got that put me on the Illinois appellate court, which has now paved the path for me to go to the Illinois Supreme Court is important. If those 510 people had stayed home, I wouldn't be here. So, you know, one vote at a time, you eat the elephant one bite at a time. But I think that that's a path that's really, it's something simple and really important that everybody can participate in. I, your, your story reminds me of uh, Illinois Secretary of State Jesse White tells a story about an elected official who won by one vote, just one. The election was challenged, and the one vote never changed. Even after the challenge, the elected official won by one vote. And he looked across the audience of young people and said, what would have happened if that elected official's mother chose not to go vote? 
Yeah, and that 500 is that's a community, that's a neighborhood. So as we make a plan for ourselves to vote, it's important to bring someone along with you, whether that's your neighbor, whether that's helping, um, you know, an older family member, whether that's bringing out the young folks in our own family, right? People who could be our contemporaries, people who are younger than us, encouraging them to vote because when we galvanize together as a community, our voices are certainly amplified. So the question, um, Madam Justice, is you you have to. Uh, it's it's interesting for a radio host to tell a Supreme Court justice what they have to do, but I'm going to make a stab at it. Go ahead, attempt. <laughs> you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Justice Cunningham, your voice yeah. has to be a voice um, demanding that anyone who can should vote must vote and it has to start with African Americans Latino Americans and any other American who feels rightly or wrongly that they have been marginalized left out, stepped on, held back or somehow unable to participate you have to encourage them to vote here's your platform, how are you going to encourage them? I think it's really really important to for young people in particular because they're so marginalized now and they they don't see a pathway often out of whatever mire of misery they may be in but the vote's really the pathway and I do feel that I am a walking commercial for single votes really count and the way to to get started is to do it when you're young. I really think registering people in high schools and in churches and community organizations when they're teenagers, 17, 18 year olds, that's a start. And I think every little thing helps. So if you start with one program in a community, a church, a community organization where all of the 17 and 18 year olds have to be registered, that's a start. And I think Getting um, influ- influencers, you know, I'm I'm not on social media, but social media is a powerful tool. It is. So those of us who are on social media and who have the influence to get these young people not only to to register to vote, to act, but to actually go out and vote. I look at what's going, what's hanging in the balance now is so important. Every single little vote can really make a difference, not so much in Illinois, but if we look what's going on across the country, in Georgia, in places like upstate New York, in New Jersey, in our neighboring state of Wisconsin, single votes can make a difference. And I think that message can can be sent and has to be sent to young people. So those of us who have the power of social media behind us really need to use it and focus on that right now because it's crucial. You know, you talk about, and I'm, I'm really excited to hear you talk about voting as a necessity, and then you list a litany of other communities, other states, where uh, there are some tough questions and tough issues, tough races. Mm -hmm. And if young people are not engaged, then there will not be the change they are seeking and hoping to happen. But here in Illinois, you also make another good point. You know, 
we don't really have the same kind of voting challenges in Illinois, I do not think. And thus, our percentage of voters actually getting to the polls ends up being lower than you would think a state like Illinois should produce in terms of actual percentages of voters. What can we do to encourage young people? I'm I'm talking about you, Adia, Generation Z. To encourage you all to get out to the polls and vote. Although, in full disclosure, we do know that uh, Adia did get her vote by mail ballot. I have voted in every single election that I have been eligible to participate in. Whether it is primary, (laughs) general, off-season, on-season, even year, odd year. I vote, and I attribute that um, personally to just voting being a culture in my household. So, being as a child going into the ballot uh, with my parents and being like, "Oh, I want to push the button," like, "Okay, you can push the big old green vote button." Like, you go on and participate. <laughs> so, I think yes, it is. You know, how can we galvanize young people? How can we energize young people? But in our communities and larger family systems, um, voting should be a habit. Um, It's something that parents should be taking their children to. It's something that, you know, as students get older and become in high school, you know, you're telling your friends you're a senior in high school. Yeah, it's cool to be a senior and I could vote. So just continuing to promote the culture of voting um, at all ages and at all levels uh, will make it, you know, something cool to do. So was that a question for the justice? Uh, you asked me. <laughs> <laughs> there was a question for me, so I answered that justice one. Justice Cunningham, I'm interested well, to know. I absolutely, I absolutely agree with it there. I think it has to be a culture, a family culture, and that's how it was in my household. My 18 year old will now understand yes. voting is important. Listen, uh, Justice Joy Cunningham, you are indeed a walking billboard for why voting matters. Um, and not just in Illinois, but nationwide. So we salute you in your journey. We wish you Godspeed on your journey. And we believe, we solely, surely believe that as you sit on the highest bench in the state of Illinois, that justice will prevail for the rich, for the poor, for the black, for the white, for all of those in Illinois. Justice Joy Cunningham. You know what they say, Justice? Weeping main door for the night, but it looks like joy is coming to the bench in the morning. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Justin. It's been a pleasure for me. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. That was Illinois Supreme Court Justice Joy Cunningham. This is and has been the My Community Plan Foundation Hour. I'm your host, Reverend Mitchell L. Ikenna Johnson. And I'm your co-host, Adia Hayden, proud supporter of the Philadelphia Eagles. Let's go on and continue this undefeated week. Hey, 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 the Bears. Have a great week, everybody. The Bears. (laughs) Are you kidding me? The Bears and the Bulls.